morning, Delray Baptist Church. It's wonderful to see you again. I've been here before and it's uh, always a delight to, uh, to visit. The last time I was here I was uh, preaching to a, a smaller group. It's wonderful to see that you've grown uh, and grown in ways that uh, we trust the Lord will be glorified in. Uh, so before we uh, look at God's word, why don't we pray one more time. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we praise you, Lord, for you are a mighty, powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God. We pray, Lord, that you would visit us this morning, uh, that you would stir our hearts this morning, that you would reveal yourself to us in your word. Pray, Lord, that uh, as we look uh, at Malachi, Lord, that you would uh, be made known and be made clear, and that we would know your love more fully. We pray us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for those of you who don't know me, I'm from Sydney, Australia. Um, And requisite of being from Sydney, Australia, you must be a surfer. You have to have, at some point, spent a large amount of time in salt water, uh, risking your life for the the joys and pleasures of the ocean. Um, But as a surfer here in Washington, I catch myself doing strange things sometimes. Uh, The other day, as I was... Uh, driving from D.C. over to Virginia for the, you know, the, the core reason why I would do that is to go to Chick-fil-A. But as I'm, sitting in, uh, as I'm sitting in traffic, I'm looking out at the Potomac and I see a vessel uh, you know, kind of tugging down the Potomac. Uh, and I'm looking at it and I catch myself you know, uh, fantasizing, looking closely at the bow of the boat. Now, why is that? Well, it's because there's this little miniature wave that's being kicked off the bow. And as I'm looking at it, I'm imagining me as a miniature little man on a miniature little surfboard riding that miniature little wave, and I was transported for just a moment back to, uh, back to Sydney. But, you know, it's, uh, it's a, one of those things where it, it grabs a part of your heart. I remember very clearly, very vividly when I got my first barrel, when I got my first wave, when I, when I caught my first really big wave. I remember when uh, I was out with uh, some of my friends and, you know, it was too big for us and it was a really dangerous situation. I remember that vividly. I remember the time when, you know, a shark had swum underneath me uh, and my friend had said to me, hey, look, it's okay, just don't let it sneak up behind you, which is, of course, a joke because if the shark wants to sneak up behind you, you've got no say in it. Um, But I remember these things so clearly and so distinctly because the ocean that surfing for me had captured my heart. And so that's true for all of us. There's something that's captured each of our hearts. Now, it might not be surfing. Um, It might be, you know, cupcakes. It might be college football. It could even be politics. Here we are in D.C. in an election year. Everything seems to take on a certain blue or red tinge to it. You know, there's things that invade our lives, invade the tastes that we taste. The, the colors that we see. Well, like many surfers in Washington, I, I've gotten over my desire to surf every day. Um, it's no longer deeply grounded in me that I need to be in the water. Perhaps that's the same for you. Maybe you've gone and tasted Georgetown cupcakes and seen that it was good and, and moved on. And certainly if you're a Hokies fan, you've probably forgotten about the Sugar Bowl loss last year. Maybe not. And then the election. It's Next year, 12 months' time, it's probably not going to be monopolizing your time as much as it is right now. 
But if there is something that is capturing you, surely there's something that's more universal, more fundamental, more central to your core. Is it your spouse? Is it your kids? Is it your identity? Maybe your job? What about God? Has God turned your life upside down? Has he assailed the very core of who you are? Or is he like Georgetown Cupcakes, good but kind of forgettable? Well, the book of Malachi, uh, which we're going to be looking at over the next two weeks, paints a picture of an enormous God, a mighty God, a God that grabs hold of the hearts of his people, displays to us a, a God who is loving and powerful and mighty, puts on display a radically world-shifting love uh, of God for his people and the warnings that come to those whose affections have drifted. So please, if you would, turning your Bibles to Malachi, if you're using a, a, a Bible in the pews, I believe that's on page 675. If you're using your own Bible, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, so if you can find Matthew, hang a left, and you'll be in Malachi. So as we come to this book, we gain something of the context from the very first verses. The very first verses say, an oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Malachi is the vehicle. Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, as is known by his people, is the source. And Israel, the audience. This message is one concerning itself about God's glory and his people's relationship with him. See, the nation Israel had suffered terribly in exile. And they had been recently brought out of exile. They had been under subjugation by the Babylonians. And so the deep, dark night of uh, difficult circumstance appeared to be breaking in a new morning. This new morning was them coming back, the tribe of Judah coming back to um, the, the city of Jerusalem. Now, under the leadership and preaching of Haggai and Zechariah and Ezra and Nehemiah, the, the walls had been rebuilt, the temple had been restored, uh, and the people were back in the city. So it looked very good. And yet, as we know, appearances can sometimes be deceiving. The hearts of the people were growing restless. True worship had not been restored. They were dissatisfied. There were questions and doubts and hostility and complacency. The people's hearts were drifting. Their relationship was separating from God. This is a people with big questions. Big questions about this very relationship with God. And if you're here this morning as a Christian who's been walking faithfully with the Lord for the last handful of decades or you literally just got saved in the parking lot and here you are, you're not sure what's going on, you have big questions about your relationship with God as well. If, friend, you're here and you do not call yourself a Christian, well, then I trust that you have big questions about this God as well. Why are these people gathered this morning? Why do they spend their Sunday mornings reading God's Word and singing His praises and praying to Him? 
These must stir up questions in your mind. Well, there's no better place and no better time uh, to consider these big questions than coming to uh, God's word and coming specifically uh, to this minor prophet Malachi. And so what we'll be doing over the next two weeks is thinking about big questions about God. The first half will be big questions about our relationship with God. And next week, Lord willing, we'll be thinking about big questions about God's promises to us. And so as we come to our text now, um, this week let's consider our relationship with God. And I pray that we would see with greater clarity God's love for his people and how that love changes our lives. So if we're going to think about these big questions, how are we going to split up the text that we're looking at? Well, as we move through it, I think you'll find that we'll see three big questions. And the first, the foundational question, is does God love us? Does God love us? So if the theme of this book is God's mighty power, then the foundation of that is God's love. So let's look at it together. Malachi chapter 1, starting in verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord said? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned this mountain into a wasteland and and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will, be, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Well, we can see the pattern that will be repeated again and again in these questions. The pattern that Malachi uses for rhetorical force is God makes a statement. Then the people respond with a question. And from there, God gives them application. He reorients the people's concern away from themselves and towards God. And so we see this pattern clearly beginning in verse 2. God makes a statement, I have loved you. And the question and response is, how? This question is the question coming from a heart that is dissatisfied with their circumstances, uncertain of their position as God's people. They have been disaffected and disenfranchised and drifting away. How have you loved us? Because, Lord, right now, life is hard. You know, you've brought us back to the city, but the foreign lands are are surrounding us. These powers seem much greater than us, and we're small and suffering in drought and economic hardship. How have you loved us? Well, God's response sets the tone for the rest of the book. I have loved you, Israel, wicked and sinful people, concerned with your convenience and comfort, quick to forget and quick to desert, because I, the almighty, all-powerful God, have chosen to love you. You see there in verse 2, was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? 
Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Then as we see down in verse 4, Edom may say, Though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. We see a parallel here that God has chosen to love his people. And he has chosen to show his justice on Edom. This is a breathtaking encouragement from the Lord that for his people there is no situation, no set of circumstances, indeed nothing that will separate them from the love of God. Paul encourages the Christians in Rome of the same thing, of the same promise. Neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That is the encouragement that God has given to the people here. Malachi tells the readers that, in fact, you will see with your own eyes, and your response will be to say that God is great, great even beyond the nation of Israel. But what will we see? How will we see it? Because to us, nation Israel, in this time, Edom is great and powerful and strong. I just don't see it happening. Well, the promise is true. History speaks to this. Edom is about to be literally, physically, wiped from the face of the earth. Nothing to remain. And yet, poor, weak, small nation Israel will be protected and cared for. And they will endure. God's love is vindicated through his actions. The the question is answered, how have you loved us? Well, he's loved them by showing them through his actions. And when we consider how it is that God has loved us, we look to his actions. Christian, my my brother and sister in Christ, have have you considered and dwelt upon the what it was that you did to earn God's love. Have you, have you ever thought about that? Well, because the reality is that if God's love for you was dependent on your being faithful and your being kind and wise and, and helpful and productive and a good neighbor and a good employee, and God doesn't see any of these as attractive in you. In fact, the Bible says that even your most righteous works are like filthy rags to him. And so, in a strange way, this is an encouragement to see that God's love for us is not dependent on us. It's not dependent on how well we memorize Scripture or how, how fervent we are in prayer or how you know, loving and kind we are to everyone else. Though these are good things, God's love for us are not dependent on these things. God loves us and shows us that love Because he chooses to act. How has he chosen to act? He's chosen to act by sending his son, Jesus Christ, the son of God, our only savior. He sent him to die on our behalf. He sent him such that his justice and his mercy might be seen clearly. We see that in these words here, that you know, I have loved you because I have chosen you. Edom has been the, 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 the 
the subject of God's justice and his wrath and his purity. And so we see that so clearly at the cross through Christ. So as we ask this big question, this big foundational question of, does God love us? Our answer is yes, and it is yes in Christ. We know this is, is true because Jesus came and he lived, and he lived a perfect life. He lived a life that none of us could live. He lived a life fully tempted by all the things that we're tempted by, and yet did not sin. He didn't sin because he is God incarnate. He is the perfect man. He came to this earth and, and lived, out, lived this life of perfection. And yet not because he was guilty, but because of God's love for us, went to the cross. Went to the cross convicted as a criminal by the highest court in this land. And yet the failure of that highest court to see his innocence bears testimony to our sinfulness and our need for this saviour. And so this morning, as we look at this text and we ask this question, how has God loved us? The answer is before us in his action, as Christ went to the cross, poured out his life, bore the wrath for the punishment of sin that we deserve, drank that cup to the absolute end, so that there is no condemnation for us this morning, that we know life fully and eternally if we would repent of our sin and turn to Christ. And so, friend, if you're not a Christian, if you do not call yourself a follower of Jesus, then I wonder, do you see yourself in these words? Do you see yourself in the first six, five verses of our text this morning? Because the truth is that you are Esau. You are Edom. You are the the one who will be receiving the full wrath and penalty for your sin. And so this morning, I will plead with you to turn, turn from this folly of relying on yourself and trusting in yourself and recognize that God, he has chosen to love his people. Repent of your sin and trust in Christ. He is our savior. Now, I would venture to say that Serious consideration of this first big question, does God love us, yields a recognition of a holy other, a breathtaking divine, an eternally powerful answer. The answer is yes. Yes, he chose to love us, and that love points to his glory, a glory beyond the borders of Israel, a love so powerful that it should deeply impact both our hearts, and our minds. What God's amazing love for us is seen as our foundation. And so we, we move forward. We move forward knowing that that's our foundation, our bedrock. And we ask our second big question for this morning. Our second big question about our relationship with God. Does our worship of God matter? Does our worship of God matter? God is serious about the way that we're to come to worship him. We see it in our text. Let's read it together. In verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, 
where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible when you bring blind animals for sacrifice. Is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now implore implore God to be gracious to us with such offerings from your hands. Will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offerings from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled, and of its food, it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Crushed is the che- cursed is the cheat who has ex- an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. And now this admonition is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you have not set your heart to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the offal from your festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I have set you this admonition so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I give them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me, and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have cursed you to be despised and humiliated before all the people, because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. God is dead serious about the way that we're to worship him. The assertion that we see here is that the priests of Israel were showing contempt for God's name. And their question in response, how? You know, we bring sacrifices, we we know what we're supposed to do, and we're going through those motions, and how? 
Jerusalem has been restored, the, the temple is there, the, the people are coming, the, the, the sacrifices are being made. I just don't get it. Well, in God's response, as you see, again and again, he's saying that you are having a contemptuous heart towards me, not by what you're saying, but by what you're doing. God's response is that your actions in how you worship me speak louder and more clearly than your words. Your actions in how you worship me speak louder and more clearly than your words. God, God's charge cuts to the core of Israel's issue. Their worship of God displays their heart towards him. Their hearts are disaffected, and unconcerned, and impatient, and prideful. There's a, the relational drift is being borne out in the way that they're worshipping him. It's, being, it's on display for all to see. And this is a big problem. Because God says, I am a great king. I am the Lord Almighty. My name is to be feared among the nations. And by you bringing diseased and crippled animals, well, that's lying about who I am. God tells the priests that they're cursed, and if they don't turn and repent of what they were doing and heed the warning that he's giving them, then things are going to get a lot worse for them. You know, God says, oh, how I would wish that someone would close these doors and I don't have to deal with these, worship, these offerings anymore. Well, we see that in history, 70 years, you know, AD 70, we see Jerusalem destroyed and carried off by Rome. The, the temple is certainly closed. The, the words to the priests are, are, are horrific and chilling. The image is horrible. God would rather have these doors closed. He would rather have the priests carried off. He would rather have the excrement of their offerings smeared across their face. That They were to be despised and humiliated and cast out. These are the words of a God who is very serious about the way that his people worship him. And yet, this is just a shadow of the eternal judgment that God will visit upon those who turn and rebel against him. These words are chilling to us as we read them. And yet, in contrast, we read of Levi. Levi, who has honor for God's name, who has revered him, who has stood in awe of him, as we read in, in chapter 2, verse 5, he, he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. And this is in direct contrast to what God is saying of, of the priests that are, that are there leading the people, those who would be great, greatest concern for how the, the people were worshipping God. He says in verse 8, But you have turned from the, way, from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. And Delray Baptist Church, pray that the men who stand in this pulpit would not cause many to stumble. As you consider calling a pastor, pray that the man that you call would not cause many to stumble. This is a terrible state of affairs. The warning is clear, the consequences very real, and the bottom line obvious. God cares how he is worshipped. So the question that we must grapple with this morning is, have we shown contempt for God in the way that we've worshipped him? 
And we're not just talking about Sunday morning and whether or not you're wearing your, your, your best this morning and speaking nicely and, and kindly. We're, we're talking about the way in which we worship God with our whole lives. For the issue here that God is drawing out for the people is that you may not be saying the wrong things, but your actions are speaking louder than your words. Are we presumptive as we come to worship God? Do we presume that he will visit upon us a a convenience, a a comfort that we desire? Or through the, the... the shaping and shifting of our changing circumstances, do we delight and worship God regardless of whether we're in the the dark night of difficulty or the breaking morning of joy? You see, for for the people here in Malachi that that he's speaking to, for the nation Israel, they are coming out of that dark night as we we described before, and they should be rejoicing. They They should be most concerned with their worship and delight in God. And yet... In the blessing, in the, in the comfort, they're drifting away. And so the warning for us is that we might cling to God closely and tightly and dearly in prayer and in his word as we go through difficulty. I'm sure we all know what that feels like. We need to be on guard for maintaining pure worship of God and, and a heart that delights in him as the morning does break, as the as the the time of difficulty does pass. The danger is clearly more, the danger is greater here as the people are blessed. Well, Del Rey, don't put your hope and faith in the coming of a new pastor. Put your hope and faith in Christ. Don't put your worship on a man who would come and preach to you sermons that would engage you. Put your hope and your faith and worship God. Because he is the one who built this church. He is the one who will sustain you. He is the one that you are to delight in. So what is your heart saying about God in the way that you worship him? The priests begrudgingly offered deformed sacrifices. And so our question is, are our sacrifices to God deformed? Obviously, the context here in Malachi is that right worship is defined by the Levitical law. And this Levitical law is so detailed and constructed that, that you can read about it and think about it, but to uphold it is impossible. In fact, the reason why God has placed us in the Old Testament is to point us forward to a Savior, a perfect sacrifice in Christ. And so for us, as we think about our context, is our worship defiled and, and and contemptible to us. It's a matter of the heart. It's a question of, are we worshipping God as who he is? God's question at the, the question at the beginning, you know, I, I am a father, where is my honor? I'm a master, you know, where is the honor due my name? Where is, where is my respect? And so these are the questions that we must ask our, ourselves in our hearts and have those around us as this church grows and builds and the community deepens, to lean into that as the grace that God has given us, to be able to draw on our brothers and sisters in Christ, to ask these questions of our hearts. Well, as we gather as a church on Sunday morning, our worship is corporate. We're not just thinking about the individual, but we're thinking also of the corporate. Are you present? Not just physically, but are you present in your mind? 
Sometimes you know, Huffington Post puts out interesting tweets, but on a Sunday morning as we worship the great, almighty, powerful God who has built this world and constructed this universe and has plunged his hand into your heart and has changed you, that is not a time to be distracted. That is a time to be joined together with your brothers and sisters in reverence and awe and amazingly blown away by this God who would love us. The reality is that God does love us and that he will capture our desires to worship him. Situations are going to change, and yes, there's going to be good and bad times, but our worship for him remains because his love remains for us. Our joy as Christians and our worship of God will always be centered on Christ because he is our almighty savior, defender of uh, our faith and defeater of death. He's the author of our new life. And to those dark and difficult times, those circumstances, Jesus has declared boldly in his resurrection that they will not last. And so our worship is born out of that. It's overflowing from God's love for us. So does does God care about how we worship him? Does our worship of God matter? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. The right response of our transformed hearts is to delight in God's love. But we have a third question. And that third question expands on the first of worship. It's does, does God care about the way that we live? Does God care about the way that we live? Let's look again at our, at our text. Chapter 2, starting in verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughters of a foreign God. As for the man who does this, whoever whoever he may be, May the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because, no longer, because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why. It is because the Lord is acting as witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant, has not the Lord made them one in flesh and spirit? They are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate, the, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not break faith. The assertion there in verse 10 is that the the people have profaned the covenant of their father by breaking faith with one another. So our question, does it matter how we live? The answer is yes. 
The issue here is unity or the lack thereof. But Malachi goes on a, a further assertion. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offering or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And so again, there's an assertion. The people's question is why? Why does God no longer accept our offerings? Why has he departed from us? Why has he forsaken us? Why? Because he is witness to the way in which you have broken faith with your wife of your youth. You have broken the most primal and foundational of all human covenants, the marriage covenant, and in doing so have broken faith with me, your God. The way in which you live matters to God. We see this throughout Scripture, how God has instituted marriage. Marriage is an image of who God is. And and divorce, as we read here, is hated because it lies about God and it hurts us. We see marriage spoken of in Genesis 2 as God institutes it. We see it again here in Malachi. And then Jesus himself expands on it in Matthew 19, saying that it is God's institution. We see then Paul encouraging the, the, the church in uh, Ephesus that this marriage bond, this marriage unity, is one that displays Christ's relationship with the church. And so this is a very serious and a very central issue to the people here, the people of Israel, as they have made this decision to break the union uh, that they have made with the, the others in uh, God's nation, Israel. They've made, again, another statement about who God is. This disunity is is making a bold claim about who God is in his disunity. And so you see God's response. Quick and sure and decisive. God has made the husband and wife one in flesh and spirit. Yet the Israelites sought divorce so they could marry women of foreign gods. Not only does this lie about God, but this harms the people. This is not a good thing. This is not a freeing thing. Divorce is not the reset button that we can push to to enjoy greater freedom. This is not progressive or socially beneficial. Turning away from God in unfaithfulness to their wives is terrible, destructive, idolatrous, and God hates it. Often we we look at the Bible and and it can be, straight shots can be more difficult than angled shots, if that makes sense. As God says, I hate divorce, that's about as straight a shot as you can get. He hates it because it lies about him and it hurts us. And so the emphatic cry of Malachi is that the people, is for the people to guard themselves in spirit and not to break faith. The marriage covenant is such a good and sweet thing. And I pray that you, Delray Baptist Church, would rejoice as you see many of your own number marry. Rejoicing with the, with the, the husband-to-be as he, as he looks forward to laying down his life for his wife. And the blushing bride delighting in, in a life of, of walking and serving the Lord, united with this man. I pray that you would delight and rejoice in that, this good and right thing that proclaims the gospel, that proclaims God's love for us. Marriage covenant is a good and sweet thing. 
points to God's glory, his mercy, his unity. We put our relationship as a church with God on display when we rejoice with each other as we, we enter into this marriage covenant. Our relationship with God is also on full display to the world when as a church we fight for faithfulness in marriage. As those who have joined together in this body of Christ, it is our responsibility to care for and to pray for and to bear the burdens of those who are struggling and even struggling in marriage. Now that's going to look different for different people because obviously the the deeper the relationship, the better you're able to speak into that. But the responsibility is still there. The relationship is still, is still on display with God. We're to defend faith. We are to, to praise God in the way that we seek to maintain those marriage covenants. The reality of the situation, Delray, is that you are in a unique position right now. You're in a unique position to be able to go deep and to know each other well, to display the unity amongst the, around the gospel with each other. Not every church has that opportunity to be able to know not only the people that you um, get along easily with, but also the people that you wouldn't normally cross paths with. And that declares the gospel. This unity declares who God is. So I would implore you, lean into that as you rejoice with those who are rejoicing and bear the burdens of those who are suffering. And so praise God for the unity that you know now. Because I know that it hasn't always been that way in this church. It's been 12 years of difficulty, 12 years of of fervent prayer from those who would unite with you. And so praise God that he has has brought you out of that and brought you to a place where it appears as though blessing is coming. Blessing of gospel going forth in this community. And so as we think about and conclude our first week thinking in Malachi... The foundation is God's love for us. Our worship of him is very critical. He cares about it. And the way that we live together declares who God is. Malachi paints a picture of a mighty and powerful God who loves his people and cares deeply for his relationship with them. And our relationship with God finds its foundation in this love, this radical, world-shifting Love that's expressed through his son, Jesus Christ. So, knowing that God loves us, let's worship him and bind together in this church in unity and faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you, Lord, that you have shown your love to us, that you have made it clear and explicit to us through your son, Jesus Christ. I pray, Heavenly Father, that that we would worship you, that we would delight in you, that we would love you, and that that would overflow into our relationships here in this church, in this community. Pray, Lord, that you would display your glory through us. In Jesus' name, amen.